At the state capitol in Albany, religious conservatives have generally been united in their opposition to legislation billed as the Medical Aid and Dying Act, which would allow terminally ill New Yorkers to end their lives with the help of a medical professional. And as a leader of his church in New York City, Assemblymember Al Taylor was part of that opposition based on his religious background. But the Democrat has done an about-face on the issue following his experience with his father's death. Assemblyman Al Taylor joins us now to talk about the controversial legislation and his his conversion on the issue. Welcome to the show, Assemblymember. Hey, thank you so much for having me this morning. So when you joined the State Assembly following a special election in 2017, what did you know about legislation creating the Medical Aid and Dying Act, and what was your position on the issue? I knew little or nothing about the piece of legislation at the time with respect to my position up until I had that conversion was basically, hey, I'm not even trying to hear the conversation. I earnestly have spoken to so many folks um, along the quarters, as you can imagine, going from one office, one meeting, session, anywhere you're running into someone. And Hey, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't even want to stop to have the conversation, but thank you so much. And it was kind of that type of an attitude as I moved forward, because I believe personally what someone should and should not be doing when it comes in that way um, about life. Life is precious. And I had this experience, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but having my dad, my wife and I taking care of my dad for almost four years, and his health was constantly declining. And on a few occasions, it got to the point where he would say, I, I can't live like this. And initially I thought it was, or at least I wanted to dismiss it to say, well, he was uncomfortable. Let me shift the pillows. Let me do something else. Um, I don't know if it's the music. I don't know if it's the television. It's the company. What else can I do to make him comfortable? But it wasn't that. It was exactly as I thought it was that I tried to not appreciate, not receive, not want to hear him say, I can't live like this. And he was basically saying to me, over and over again, and it became rapid. I don't want to live under these conditions. Isn't there something else I can do? I can't get out of bed. I can't do anything on my own. And I'm in excruciating pain at different points. And it started to register. And even then, you know, I was not like, oh, something flashed across me to say, you need to get back into Albany, look at that piece of legislation to make sure your name is on it. Didn't even connect the dots until I had a conversation um, and we spent a couple of minutes, and I was already there at that moment, and then there was an official sit-down in the parlor outside of the chambers, and I was like, I get it. I got it. And the questions that were concerning me, you know, can someone just wake up and say, I want to do this? But the answers were already there. I think in... I think somewhere out on the West Coast, it's been in for about 15 years or, or longer, and there has not been any litigation or any allegations that, you know, something was inappropriately done or improper, and they want to do a do-over. It, it's been pretty much, pretty much uncontested. And as I looked at it, I said, okay, if we do all the right things, and what I mean by that is making sure the bells and whistles are there, so you have to have um, I think it's three physicians to agree. It's not just a haphazard thing. And as I drilled into it and listened and asked questions, my questions were answered and documented. I said, okay, sign me up. Not only am I changing my position, but I'm going to put my name on this bill. And I mean, that's the short of it. And honestly, if I had not had that experience with my dad, my wife and I, 
uh, I, I probably wouldn't even look back at this twice at all. But having the experience and watching my dad verbally say, this is not what I want. But at that point, it could not have happened because he would have, need, he would have had to do this six months out prior to getting gravely ill, if you would. Yeah, the legislation as billed is designed to serve mentally competent, terminally ill patients who choose to uh, self-administer medication that would bring about the end of their life. Would that have fit the bill with your father? Was he diagnosed with with a terminal illness? No, he he wasn't. um, Not six months out, Mm -hmm. if, if you would. So I would say not even a year out. It, it, it wasn't there. Um, he had some dementia. They weren't sure in the latter stages. It looked like that's what was happening. Um, and then I was told um, by his physician that there were, from his, his prostate cancer, there were some things that were concerning. But again, if, if you look at it, and he may or may not have qualified, but the takeaway for me was anyone that has the ability to say this is going, you know, when I say have the ability, it's been medically proven. There's no ifs, ads, and buts about it. This is terminal. And the person has the ability to sit and confer with their physicians, confer with their family, and say this is the choice that I like to do. So a year out from now, six months from here, when I'm in excruciating pain and it's getting worse than what I'm currently dealing with, they should have that option, I believe. Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. This is the Capitol Press Room, and we're talking about the Medical Aid and Dying Act with Assemblymember Al Taylor, an Upper Manhattan Democrat. So in your case, it sounds like you and your wife were there for your father and were willing to spend time and possibly money on his care. But one of the critiques of this bill is that it could set up a system where people feel pressure to end their own life, like if they're a financial burden or just a burden on the time of others. So how do you avoid that from happening moving forward if medical aid and dying becomes the law of New York? I don't know that you can actually avoid it when we're talking about people. It it doesn't matter. I mean, the backside of that um, scenario could be the person is the wealthiest person in the world. And people are, to your point, there's pressure to to sign on to this but remember as i understand it no one gets the the final aha but the individual themselves so if it's me and i've decided to sign on to this and i put in place through the through the physicians the ability to administer my own i'm going to say demise at this point but it's it's in my hands it's up to my control no one is going to provide me with anything not a family member not a physician it has to be something that i do on my own in the back side of it there are two things one can be i don't want to be a burden and the other one can be like hey this guy is so rich let's just you know let's get rid of our great uncle and yeah yeah uncle you need to do these things i i think the pressure is there on either side of the coin that you would look at, but it's the individual that's going to walk away and say, okay, let's have a heartfelt conversation. What are your concerns? So if it's, you don't want to be a burden, we don't have that problem. We have the means and the finances to do those things for that person. But then on the other side of that, if you're looking and you're saying, we don't have the resources, the medical dollars are not there to do what we need to do. And in my most comfortable moment, my pain level is going to be at a 10 as opposed to a two, and two being the lowest, 
that's something should be factored in as well. What is my care going to look like? Who's providing that care? I think those are real questions, and that may be part of how that individual or that family with the individual support of the support of the family, that individual would make that decision to say, hey, you know what? This is our financial level. This is what it's going to cost to get me at a level two. And even a level two may be excruciating pain. Always these factors, but it's going to really require a conversation with your family, your spouse, your children, and understand that you're on the same page together. And it's never easy warning, I don't believe, to say, okay, we're going to get this news, and that news says that you're able to do X, Y, and Z. I'm totally separate. My niece, 17 years of age, and she would not have qualified at all, but 17 years of age decided when she was 16 with her family, her, her, her mother and her dad, prayerful consideration, she had been suffering from a cancer since she was like 13 up and down the East Coast to every physician. And it came to a point where she said that um, it was do not resuscitate. And she, she understood this a year out. And I remember in July when it was coming up to the final hours, the mother wanted to, can we do something? Can we, can we walk that back? And the husband said, no. And he shared that his 16-year-old daughter at the time said, Dad, I, I, I'm ready. I can, I can go. Would you help mommy to understand this? Because the pain is, this is, this is a 16-year-old child that died at 17. But she had the, the bandwidth to have this one-on-one conversation with her dad. So when it got really close to that point, he was able, it, it didn't make it easier, but articulating that to his wife helped her to better understand, okay, we, we got to let go. And there's not going to be a, uh, the, the, the order was do not resuscitate. And, you know, in that moment, the energy, the, the emotions are high, but they respect it. And she just went on to rest in peace. So I, I say that as an example. So this is a 16-year-old who passed at 17, but at the same time, she understood the pain. She understood, you know, there was nothing else out there. Now, if she were older, though, I'm sure she would have gone for that, you know, if it were permissible in the state that she lived in. But people come to these decisions based on what they are experiencing. And all I'm saying in this legislation, which I support, is give people that opportunity. Well, you make the point there about how people's personal experiences really shape the way they come down on these controversial issues like the Medical Aid and Dying Act. So when you're in Albany and pushing this bill moving forward, how do you get through to people who might not have the same life experience as you but are opposed to this bill? Because it seems like if you hadn't had this personal experience, you wouldn't have had your own conversion. So how do you move people on this issue? Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. Well, you know, I'm not allowed to lobby my colleagues, but I did a uh, an editorial. I, I printed it. People read it. They will ask. And I'm hoping that my colleagues will, will come to me and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because a few of my colleagues, if I'm not mistaken, have committed to signing on after they learned that I had signed on. And then I say, well, how did you get there? What did you do? So you share. You share your experience and hope for the best. Are there other issues 
during your time as an assembly member the last five or six years where you've had to reconcile maybe your beliefs from the theological seminary experience or as a leader in your church and being a, an elected official? And I mean, are, are you constantly at odds with each other? Are you able to reconcile um, those different parts of your life? I, I, I think what what I've learned, um, I think there are three things that stand out. This is one. The other one was a woman's right to choose. And my physician was, I think, in 2018, 2019, no. And in 2023, I said, yes. And people said, well, how can you switch? And I said, to them, and it wasn't it wasn't an easy. I didn't come to this because I wanted another position. It, it happened, and it was brought out after. But my my thing was okay. I know what I believe, right? And now I I still struggle in this regard. I know what my personal beliefs are on some issues in terms of my theological believing, and then I'm also the person that. 140,000 people I represent want to have their voice heard. So what I was doing was preempting them from having a voice. So I said, let the voters decide. And I reversed myself. And someone said, well, he reversed himself. I said, well, don't you want someone that's willing to, to look at everything and revisit and be willing to be flexible where it's necessary? It's one of those dog if you do, dog if you don't. <laughs> but I'm, I'm very comfortable and I didn't get there easily, but it takes, it's a struggle. It's, it's a struggle sometimes. When I say sometimes, you, you, you look at your beliefs, you look at your theological understanding, and then you look at what job you hold and why are you here and who do you represent. And always you, you want to represent your creator, but you also do not want to stifle the voice of people that have not had an opportunity to exercise their rights. So I had to move myself out of the way and allow folks to step up and be heard and exercise their right. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We've been speaking with Assemblymember Al Taylor. He is a Democrat representing parts of Upper Manhattan. Assemblymember, thank you so much for making the time, and I'm sorry about your father. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll see you in the hallways, I'm sure, real soon. Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.